This is Katie Maxwell. And I'm Lauren Paris. We're your hosts of Voices of the Earth, a Faith in Place podcast. We'll be exploring the intersection of spirituality, the environment, and justice. Faith in Place is a multi-faith environmental justice nonprofit based in Illinois, and we're on a mission to empower communities of all faiths to be leaders in caring for the earth, providing resources to educate, connect, and advocate for healthier communities. And we are also the proud affiliate of Interfaith Power and Light. Want to support our work? Please visit www.faithinplace.org slash donate. You can also find us on Instagram at Voices of Earth podcast and Twitter at Voices underscore of underscore Earth. Faith in Place is also on social at Faith in Place. Oh my goodness, what a way to start a podcast. Uh, Hi everyone, I'm Katie Maxwell and I'm really excited to be here today with my co-host Lauren, drinking some coffee, ready to talk a little bit about anti-racism. Lauren, what's in your cup and how are you doing? (laughs) Hi everyone, thanks for that intro Katie, I'm doing well. There's a dog barking very loudly outside my apartment as usual, all the fun things uh, that living in the city of Chicago has to offer. Um, (laughs) And I am drinking an iced coffee that I made myself with some oat milk. Very fancy. I'm also (laughs) drinking a coffee with oat milk. Lauren, I've switched from dairy to oat milk in the last few months. And most mornings I make myself a... A pumpkin spice latte kind of thing. I mix pumpkin spice into my oat milk and then I mix it with a little blender thing. Forget what those are called. Do you know what I'm talking about? Very nice. Yep, I have one too. The frother. I call it a frother. frother. (laughs) Yes. Those are awesome and they're only like 10 bucks so definitely Mm -hmm. recommend. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah and I feel like the cinnamon in the pumpkin spice spices helps regulate my blood sugar so it's good for working throughout the day and and all of that and for having really deep conversations like the one that we're gonna get into right now um because we're heading into the holidays and it can be a really hard time for people um commercialism can take us away from the spirit of family and a sense of togetherness, honoring our traditions. Um, But also spending time with our family can be really stressful as well. Um, We don't all have um, great relationships with our family members and they can, this time of year can bring up a lot of hard feelings like sadness and grief, anxiety, tension, even anger. Um, and I think that's especially true when we're in spaces like the, the ones that we're in, um, that are really progressive and trying to, uh, lean into anti-racism and equity. And, and when our family doesn't hold those same values, it can be really hard. Um, so 
yeah, just kind of want to level set what this conversation is going to be like today. It's going to be a little bit of a heavier one, but also hopefully one that leaves us with some ideas about what we can do about these really heavy feelings. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the holidays can definitely be challenging, um, especially when you work in our field uh, and are constantly informed of everything that's going on in the world. Um, you feel very passionately about expressing that to family members and friends, and sometimes um, it's not always received well. Um, so that can be very challenging. But I think that we're really lucky because on this episode of Voices of the Earth today, we will be joined by Faith in Places Energy and Climate Change Coordinator, Isioma Odom. Uh, a little bit about her, Isioma received her BA in Social Science, concentrating in Sociology and Psychology from Washington State University. And she received an MA in Social Justice from Loyola University Chicago's Institute of Pastoral Studies. She's worked to lead a lot of Faith in Places racial healing work over the last few years and have and has helped us facilitate many of these difficult conversations. Um, so with that, Isioma, we're so thrilled to have you on the podcast today to, just, to discuss such an important yet heavy topic. Uh, can you please take a moment to introduce yourself? Thank you, Lauren and Katie. Um, like Lauren said, I I'm originally from Washington State. I was born and raised in the Evergreen State. And for those of you who have never been to Washington, I definitely think that you should put it on your list of places to go. Um, if you enjoy nature or scenery, it's definitely um, worth, worth the trip out west. Um, and that's, again, Washington State, because a lot of times when I say Washington, people automatically assume Washington, D.C., um, it's like, no, there's, <laughs> there's a place called Washington state. Like, I don't know people don't remember that, or they just don't associate black people with living in Washington, I guess. Um, they probably most associate, you know, uh, people of color being more from DC. Um, but there are black people in Washington state. So, uh, I, but I moved to Chicago from California, um, about six years ago, going on seven years ago, um, so I moved to Chicago specifically to study social justice work. Um, so I've been at Faith in Place for three years now, and I reside um, in the South Side and South Shore area of Chicago. Thanks for sharing that, Isioma. I didn't know that you had come from California before coming to Chicago. Yeah, I've been, I was in Chicago for like, I mean, in California for like six years. Then I moved back to Washington to finish my degree, and then I moved back to California, um, and then from California to Chicago. So I've been moving around a little bit. My mother is like, can you please stay put <laughs> and stay somewhere for at least five years <laughs> to establish yourself, you know, stop moving around. But I'm like, I have nothing tying me anywhere. Like, I'm like, I like to think of myself as a tumbleweed. I just kind of like go wherever the wind takes me, like. If I'm meant to be somewhere, I'm I'm going to go there. You know, there's nothing tying me to a specific place. But I really am um, trying to anchor myself here in Chicago as much as I can to do this type of work. So it's been great. Yeah. Can you say more about that? Why you wanted to do an MA in social justice and how you see yourself anchoring 
in Chicago around this work? Yeah, what's funny is I've always said I've wanted to move to Chicago, even though I had never visited the city before I moved here. Um, out West, you hear a lot of stories about Chicago. And, you know, for people that are not from Chicago, you know, you probably can, you know, remember the stories hearing about all the violence and um, everything that happens in the city. And that's mostly all I heard. Um, and somebody like me, I'm more drawn to situations like that because I want to understand the why. Because um, there has to be a reason why we're hearing these stories about this specific, this specific city. There has to be a reason why these things are happening. I want to know what those reasons are. I want to be a part of that movement to help change things. So I was always constantly telling all my family members, I'm going to move to Chicago one day. I'm going to move to Chicago. My sister's like, why? Why do you want to move to Chicago? Like, out of all places you can live. Like, my dad, he even was like, what? Like, you picked that city out of all cities? And I was like, I'm just so drawn to it. Like, I don't know what it is, but I knew I had to be in this city. And, and Loyola was the only school I actually applied to for graduate school. Um, and what's funny about that, this is how God works. I, I didn't even expect to get in. I literally turned my application in the last day it was due. And I was actually in AmeriCorps while I was applying for graduate school. And, I, you know, everybody in AmeriCorps was applying. So I just said, well, everybody's applying, so I'm just going to apply. You know, like, really had no vision. I was like, I, I just, I want to move to Chicago. So this is probably a good way to, like, to, to do that if I were to get in. So didn't even think much about it. Um, and then when I got my acceptance, acceptance letter, I was like, whoa. <laughs> I was like, I'm supposed to be there. Um, so, yeah, I packed up all my things. I, I don't have any family here. So um, it was a big, big, big deal for my family for me to be out here um, by myself. Um, and six years later, I'm still here. <laughs> Well, we're glad to have you here. I definitely think that um, I'm from Chicago. I'm also I'm from the South Side, and I definitely think that um, you know Chicago's a beautiful city. I think it's the best city in the world, but we definitely have some issues, um, especially over the last couple years with you know an increase in violence and police brutality and just a lot of tension um, within the city. So can you talk a little bit more about your anti-racism work and what that sort of means to you? Yeah, so I think I started my work, you know, young. Um, you know, like I said, I grew up in Washington, which is predominantly white. Um, a lot of times I was the only person of color in my classes growing up. So I dealt with a lot of racism. Um, it wasn't as overt as it is here in the Midwest, uh, which is, was very shocking to me because I always heard about like this Midwest swing, like this like Midwest hospitality. So I thought that it was going to be a lot nicer. Um, but, you know, when I came here, I realized that that wasn't necessarily the case. Um, but I think I started off my work with my mother because my, mo my mother is very like, um, I like to call her militant. She's very militant. So she's always like, protesting and like out there on the front lines um, fighting for things. She was in the union at her job for like 40 something years fighting for people's rights, workers rights. So she was always like 
kind of a champion for justice. And she kind of like, you know, put instilled that in all of us, all of her children. So I kind of already came in with the lens of justice. Um, and I actually wanted to go to law school. So uh, from a very young age, my dad was trying to get me to go to law school. And like he thought I was going to do civil rights. Um, I was working at the time during high school at uh, the Gifford Pinchel National Forest, which is, you know, a federal um, organization. And I uh, was working with the Civil Rights Department during that time. So I was kind of headed that way, but then decided not to go that route for many reasons. Um, But I kind of more got into it when I uh, moved to Chicago, was taking my courses at Loyola and my internships that I was taking at the time uh, really kind of pushed me to be more active and more involved in like the social justice movement. Um, so I started off at the Health Justice Project, um, which was a branch of the Beasley Institute um, of Law at Loyola. And um, I was working with uh, law students and uh, lawyers at the time working on cases of lead poisoning in federal homes here in Chicago. And the lead poison that was happening was in predominantly on the west side and south side of Chicago in uh, you know communities of color. So they were being uh, basically poisoned inside of these federal homes and nobody was doing anything about it. So we started working on these cases and meeting with these families and, you know, and just seeing the, the heartache of them trying to navigate the system within the system, you know, um, trying to move them, move locations and not, not being allowed to do so. But then, um, so they're staying in these homes that are dangerous to their health, but nobody wants to do anything about it because it would cost too much to move them. So we fought for for cases like this when I first came here, and that kind of got me more interested in like working with the community. Um, and then I really, really jumped into it when I uh, was a facilitator for the Brother David Dar Center, which is a social justice center um, in Bridgeport. And um, I don't know if any, many people know about the neighborhood of Bridgeport here in Chicago, but it was a uh, you know a neighborhood where black people were not allowed in that neighborhood at, at one point in history. So it was interesting to be in that space and have certain uh, members of the community come to the center and, you know, there, there would be black uh, men and women that would come and they'll be like, wow, it's so weird being here because growing up, I wasn't allowed to come to this neighborhood. Um, and now to see that there's a social justice center here working on things and educating the youth and doing all these things is crazy. It's like, so, and this is all in our lifetime, right? This is not a million years ago. Like, this is all very recent things that have, you know, uh, uh, that recently has changed. You know, we still have a long way to go um, in the city, but I think um, there are some people doing really good work in these communities. And so I like to always kind of like uplift them um, because I feel like they don't get enough recognition. You know, we hear so much about the violence but not enough about the people like the Brother David Dar Center or the Health Justice Project that are like working constantly every day on these these uh, social justice issues. So that's kind of how I got into it. That's awesome. Thanks so much for sharing that, Isioma. And I feel like 
what you just did there of uplifting the Darst Center and the work that they're doing is a perfect example of anti-racism in practice, right? Because anti-racism to me is something that we have to practice all of the time. It's not just something that we do once and we're done and check that box off, but it's a lifelong um, practice of uplifting other people and um, for me as a white woman, decentering myself a lot of the time. So I'm really um, loving also hearing about your family and how much of an activist your mother is because it really sounds like you, between your mother and your father, have some amazing role models for social justice and climate. And I'd love to hear you say more about um, how anti-racism as a practice fits into climate and, and your work in the community. Yeah, so honestly, like when I was getting my degree, I was more focused on, you know, racial justice. Of course, there's other issues of justice that go along with that. There's immigration and, you know, food justice and there's, you know, other subjects that are also very important. Um, but my focus primarily was on racial justice. Um, when I ran across the job description for, you know, Faith in Place, I didn't really, it didn't really register to me, like, that there was such like similarities until I had the interview and I started, you know, discussing like the intersectionalities of uh, climate justice and racial justice. And I was like, you know, I remember I wrote my thesis on, uh, you know, how theology and ecology and uh, religion should be interconnected um, in fighting for, you know, health justice um, for communities of color. And it started to make sense. Like, you know, it just, there's a root cause to all of this. And if we cannot address climate change without addressing racial justice, um, and racial issues, because it stems from there. So I knew like, I wanted to be a face that's not necessarily a familiar face in this field, right? Like I, you don't see too many African-American women, out here talking about climate justice. Um, but I knew that like, I would probably have more impact in communities of color because people can see my face and they can see like, you know, have something to relate to. Um, Cause you know, it's my understanding working with communities that it, it, you can really um, appeal to people's hearts if they can see themselves in you. Um, so I knew I could play an important, important role in that movement, that climate justice movement, um, by talking about environmental justice and connecting it together. Um, my dad, he was the former, uh, you know, director of Department of Ecology, so he always had that environmental lens, but he never really even talked about the connection between uh, climate and environmental, I mean, in between uh, racial justice. He didn't even do that. He focused mostly on um, just the environment. And so even him to have made it to that position, high position in his, uh, his office, I, I remember I was, I helped him clean out his office when he retired and I was looking at all the people that worked there and he was the only black person that worked in the whole building. And I was like, 
why didn't you hire more people of color here? And he was like, oh, well, we tried. And like, um, you know, he said he's, he was trying to appeal to people, you know, and the and people of color. First of all, you're in Washington, so there's not a lot, but they're there, right? But a lot of times they weren't in that field. Um, so he found it very difficult to hire anyone, a uh, person of color, to work in his office. And I was like, that's shameful. Like, you know, so I knew that, like, there needed to be more people in this field. And so I was like, that's why. Um, when I got this job, I was like, okay, this is kind of like a start to something, you know, um, that, I, you know, I'm becoming a part of that I think in the future is going to look very differently than it does now. So I knew I wanted to be a part of that movement. Um, so yes, that's kind of how I connected the two. And, uh, you know, I think more people that you talk to in the community are starting to understand the connection as well. And so that's what we want, right? We want people to um, have the knowledge and the history and, and not only that, but help to make things happen, you know, help to make changes happen within their own communities because they're the ones that are being impacted by it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Isiyama. And, you know, thank you for bringing representation to our organization because I really feel like that's what sets us apart is that, we, the people who work at Faith in Place are working in these communities, are working in EJ communities and communities of color. And I think that representation is just so important, especially with our youth program and seeing, you know, it's so great for our youth to be able to see people from their own communities and leadership positions at Faith in Place and in the environmental field. I, I just think it's really powerful and we're seeing them, you know, succeed so much from that and um, use people like you as great influences and inspiration to start their careers in the environmental field. So thank you for that. Um, And I also wanted to just shift the conversation a little bit about um, the holidays and and what that can kind of bring about for many people this time of year. Um, Obviously, The holidays can be triggering, as we mentioned um, in the start of the episode, for many people. Uh, You might be seeing family members who might not, you know, agree with you, might bring up some, you know, difficult conversations, difficult feelings. Um, With that in mind, I was wondering, when we're ready to start having anti-racist conversations with friends, families, or even in the workplace, what are some tips for getting started that um, you can give sort of with your experience uh, leading racial healing circles and leading anti-racism work in your career? Yeah, well, first, you know, change starts with you. So just living by example is number one. Um, you know, make sure you're active and you're involved. You're not just an ally, but you're an accomplice as well. Um and I think, you know, I can't speak for a, a, a white family. I'm not white, so I can't say like, oh, you need to go to your family members and say this and say that. What I find, because I am half Nigerian and Nigerians also, um, you know, have a, a, a different reaction when it comes to racism because, you know, they don't really deal with that in Nigeria. So it's like, um, 
and them understanding the history of this country and what it means to African-Americans here, you know, it, it takes a little bit longer for them to understand exactly the damage that was done, you know, for over 400 years, you know. Um, so what I find to, that works for me, even when dealing with my family, is asking more questions um, instead of always you know, kind of giving your opinion and putting your views and your your outlook on life on other people, just let people say what they want and then ask them questions, follow-up questions. Um, and you'll find when you start doing that, that um, they'll begin to form their own understanding, and you know, differently. Because then you're you can say things like when they maybe say something that you don't agree with, <clears throat> for example, if they are talking about how they don't believe in um, that there's a race problem here in the U.S. Um, because there's some people who who think that. Right. Um, and you can say, oh, that's interesting. You know, um, can you give me some examples like why you think <laughs> there isn't a race problem here? Like what what is why do you think that is? Um, or just asking more questions to try to get them to understand that um, maybe they, there's another perspective that they can view um, because everything is perspective, right? So that's their perspective. Um, it may be wrong, but that's their perspective still, right? So you have to say, okay, I hear you, but did you see this or did you notice this? Or have you uh, read about this before or, um, you know, kind of redirect them in a way that like doesn't shame them, but also like gets them to understand that there is a problem here and um, and and the statistics and data and science to back it up, um, you know, and you can argue that, too. Like, do you not believe in science? Do you not believe in studies? Do you not believe in research? Um Showing them, you know, this is the statistics, this is the proof, this is everything. Like, these are the stories that people have. Um, putting them in the same room with somebody that has experienced something also can be um, very impactful because it's harder to understand what is happening here if you're not around what is happening or you are not uh, paying attention right, to the communities that are being impacted. So getting people around those types of environments, getting them more involved in uh, the lives of people that have these stories, I think they'll start to make a change without them even knowing that, <clears throat> that they're making the change. Um, because it'll appeal to their hearts, it'll appeal to their, um, their humanity. Because um, I like to believe that we all still have a little bit of humanity, right? Um, somewhere. Um, people can refuse to acknowledge it, and that's another story. But I think um, at the base of everything, there's this humanity. That's what we have in common as humans that we have to understand. We need each other to survive. And I think that's um, getting that across can be difficult. but And it's, it might take forever. It might take the longest time to see anything change or to see them say things that are like, okay, you know, you're starting to understand. It may take a long time for them to get to that point. So a lot of that, it uh, falls back on you to be patient 
um, and take your time with people because this has been embedded in people's minds, you know, since before they were born. So it's like it's deeply rooted. Um, and so understanding that aspect, I think, will help with the frustration of dealing with family members, um, especially around the holidays. Um, because, you know, when you like I think Katie said, like when you're around the holidays, sitting at the kitchen table, <clears throat> that's when things start to come out and you start to hear people's real thoughts. Um, I like to say too, like imagine what a person of color right now must be feeling that, you know, and just kind of put that into their mind. Um, just imagine, like it doesn't have to be true for you. Just imagine what it would be like if it was true. You know, like, do you think that somebody would be impacted by that? Like, you know, just asking more questions like that, I think uh, I find it be very helpful. That's what I do in my family anyway. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, I definitely think focusing on that humanity um, element is really important. I know that my dad grew up on the southwest side of Chicago in the 1950s. Um, so having conversations with him about race have been very interesting and sometimes challenging in bringing up, you know, the word privilege and him not really understanding, like, how was I privileged? I came from, you know, like a poor family on the southwest side of Chicago and, you know, having to sort of like explain what privilege means and get beyond just the, the sounding of the word, I think, is um, has been a challenge. But, you know, bringing things back, like how do you really think, and this is something that I have shared with him, do you really think that my dad opened his own business, um, an insurance business over the years? And I, the way that I sort of like had a breakthrough with him was by telling him, do you really think that a black man and your position born the same year that you were born, grew up in the same neighborhood that you grew up in, would have been able to get to where you are at without at least a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot more challenges. Do you think that that would be possible realistically? And that's when I saw the light bulb sort of go off in his head. And he said, no, not without a lot of pain and a lot of challenges and barriers and I think that that was really important just bringing it back home like sort of taking out some of the verbiage that we use when we're talking about um, anti-racism and privilege and issues like that social issues um, especially for the older generation like sort of just bringing it back home and you know really finding a way to you know let it spark uh, I think is important. That's a great example, Lauren. Yeah, I think too, uh, and, and you have to remember too, like these incidences like that happen to people of color is very traumatizing. Um, and I think, you know, we have this idea in the U.S. about picking yourself up by the bootstraps and like anybody can make it if you work hard and do all these different stuff. People have their views about affirmative action and how it's not fair, you know, and all these things. But I even myself have trauma from
from racism. And if you know anything about mental health, it can really hold you back, you know, and prevent you from from flourishing. Um, And I think there's not enough acknowledgement on the impacts of people's mental health when they're dealing with um, racism. Um, meaning in the black community alone, and I'm not speaking for every black person, but it, it, uh, there is not a lot of talk of the impacts of racism on our mental health. And there should be. Um, mm-hmm. There should be more conversations about uh, what you're passing on to your children, um, you know, and how that's going to impact them later on in life because of your experiences with racism. You know, now we even me, my my mother had to have conversations with us as as children, like, oh, if somebody says this to you or somebody says that, it shouldn't be that way, you know, like, but it is, Uh, especially when you're dealing with things like, you know, the police and um, racial profiling. Um, It's kind of like you have to set your children up to be citizens in this world. And that is a very sad reality. Um, I think that we're in in the United States, um, but I good, yeah. <clears throat> I I don't think that black parents should have to have a different kind of conversation with their kids about how they move about the world than white parents do. <clears throat> but that is the reality, and that trauma is very real. And appreciate Uisioma for leaning into that a little bit in this conversation and. Um, if you don't mind, um, could you share a little bit about what some of your healing practices are around managing the trauma? What's in your healing toolkit? Yeah, so there's many things I've I've done uh, because, like I said, I'm 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 not only working and doing this type of work, but it's also a part of my life, you know, it's part of my identity um, as a black woman. Um, so I try to connect with other people. I think, especially with me, like I said, moving out here, not having any family, I had to connect to um, different social groups, um, cohorts, um, and find that support system where if I need to, I can call on or, uh, you know, uh, lean on if if needed. So I think that's important when you're dealing with, um, you know, everyday life as a person of color. And I also think, you know, meditation, yoga, all these things that really connect your mind, body, and your spirit. I think those things are have to be balanced um, in your life. Um, so if you can find ways to uh, make sure that you're mentally balanced. I think spiritually as well. Um, I think that's very helpful. I started incorporating meditation during um, during COVID. Um, and it doesn't have to be very long. It could be 15, 20 minutes a day. But And it's hard to meditate. I don't know if you guys have ever tried to meditate, but it is a practice that you have to work on because like you constantly are thinking of things when you're not supposed to be thinking of anything. So it is a challenge to learn how to meditate properly. But I think that has been very beneficial to me um, during this time, especially with the whole civil unrest and the George Floyd incident that happened. Um, 
I started incorporating meditation and then also walks in nature. Hikes have been a part of my healing journey. Um, I think that's probably the most powerful because you literally feel so small when you're out in nature and it's, it's so beautiful. It's like, I go there, that's my church, you know, going into nature, um, is very healing to me. Um, so those are some of the things I've incorporated since COVID. Um, prior to that, I was more of a activist. I was more out protesting and like, trying to form unions and I was more kind of like the freedom fighter type of person. And I've now switched roles to being more of, um, you know, holding space for people to talk about, you know, how they feel and kind of open up that space of healing to other people. And I think that's my role now. And that has also been very healing for me um, to be able to have conversations with people and kind of help them work through um, their own trauma, um, which I'm not a therapist or a counselor or anything like that. I just, I just listen. And we don't have enough of that. I think in this world of people that just listen without trying to like say anything back or try to give their opinion about anything, but, um, just give people the space to be able to share how they feel because a lot of people face, you know, racist things, you know, differently. So it's like, you know, you may meet somebody for the first time and they'll just start breaking down crying about their experiences and you feel for them because you know you've been in that space before. Um, and, you know, like it, it, they may turn to other things because of it. And that's not, um, you want to try to avoid uh, numbing it, right? So you have to incorporate these practices I think, into your life to be able to deal with it. Um, so those are just a little bit of some things I'm doing. I'm sure there's many others. Um, I write, too. I write poetry. Um, finding a creative outlet, I think, is important as well, um, especially if you're dealing with things in your everyday life, like at your job, and it's so frustrating because you have to go there every single day. You have to see the same people, and... You might be dealing with a racist coworker or a racist boss or something like that. And it, it's, you have to take those things home with you. Um, and it, that's terrible, you know? Um, but people have to face this and have to deal with this every single day. So incorporating practice, healing practices is, should be a priority in everybody's lives, not just people of color. Um, because we all need healing. <laughs> We all need the healing, right? So, yeah. Did that answer your question? Definitely. Um, okay. I definitely think it did. We really wanted to ask about, you know, how you sort of maintain your own energy and your own mental health when you're not only dealing with, you know, racism in your own life and experience, but also working in this field and trying to remain hopeful about your anti-racism and climate justice work. Um, especially when, you know, everything's going on and we, we have this 24-7 news cycle where information, it's just a constant flow of information, um, can be super overwhelming. So I think you really touched on, you know, how to sort of maintain your own energy and 
um, practice healing um, so that you don't get burnt out because this is a very <laughs> easy uh, field to feel overwhelmed, uh, feel burnt out in, especially if you are very empathetic, which Oh, I dealt with are. that during <laughs> the civil unrest. I was, you know, getting, I felt like I was getting pulled from all different directions for my friends and family that usually don't know. Some of them didn't even know what social justice work was. You know, when I first, you know, said I was doing social justice work at Loyola, like my family, some of my family members were like, what is that? You know, like, so dealing with it was a lot. Um, and it still is a lot. So I like to, you know, call it, kind of call on my ancestors for strength because I know that, you know, there's people that went through worse things than I'm going through, right? And they were able to overcome it and get through it, which is why I'm here today in this space, you know, talking with you all. Um, so I have to remember, like, you know, I'm, there's a reason why I'm here. There's a purpose why I'm here and kind of focus on that um, and, you know, get the strength from my ancestors to know, like, if, you know, I got support. I got a, a, I got a whole line of people that are, that have experienced way worse than me that, you know, uh, were strong enough to keep going and keep, keep thriving. Um, so if they can do it, then I can do it too. And kind of just remembering that, um, I think it's helpful. Isioma, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today, to share your wisdom. Lauren and I don't take this conversation lightly. Um, we know that it, uh, it means a lot to us that, that you want to join us and are willing to have this kind of conversation with us today on the podcast. And as we wrap up, what's one takeaway that you want our listeners to think about as we close our conversation? I think, you know, when you're trying to have these discussions and maybe it's your house of worship that you're trying to um, hold these racial healing circles in, I think reminding each other, um, you know, that everybody comes from a different walk of life and um, everybody is learning, everybody is growing. Let's give each other the space to be able to do so and taking deep breaths before and after because like I said, this type of topic really impacts people differently and don't know who you're speaking to, what their struggle has been, what their experiences have been and how traumatized they are by their experiences. So just allowing people to share their stories and connect with them on a way that's just listening and at the same time uplifting the voices that you feel are, um, you know, being overshadowed um, and being proactive and an ally as well as an accomplice, I think is, um, when you're doing anti-racist work, I think it's important. podcast is a creation of Faith in Place, a multi-faith environmental justice nonprofit based in Illinois. We are the proud affiliate of Interfaith Power and Light, and we are on a mission to empower Illinois people of all faiths to be leaders in caring for the earth, providing resources to educate, connect, and advocate for healthier communities. This week's episode was produced by Brogan Malloy. Your hosts are Katie Maxwell and Lauren Paris. 
Our theme song is Sweet Talk by Tyra Chatney. Today's episode featured Isioma Odom. Isioma grew up in Vancouver, Washington, surrounded by evergreen trees. Her father is the former director of the Department of Ecology for Washington State, which is where her passion for all things environmental stems from. Isioma joined Faith in Place as the Bronzeville Outreach Coordinator in May of 2018. Now she serves the organization as the Energy and Climate Change Coordinator. You can also follow Isioma on Instagram at the Afro Trek Tribe, a group of explorers encouraging those in African diaspora to get outdoors. Thank you, Isioma, for giving us your time and energy. We appreciate you so much. Please rate, review, or share this podcast with someone who might enjoy it. We can be found wherever you listen to podcasts, including Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and more. If you enjoy this podcast, please support the work of Faith in Place by donating. Please go to faithinplace.org forward slash donate. Your support means we can empower more youth, engage with more green teams, and advocate for better climate policies that put people and the planet first. And please follow our social media pages on Twitter at Voices underscore of underscore Earth and on Instagram at Voices of Earth Podcast. Thanks for listening and see you again soon.